Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Jerry Deaton is my guest today. He's a Kentucky writer and filmmaker and uh, a writer of plays, too. We'll find out here in just a minute. And a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. Uh, Jerry, you have a, uh, a varied and wide background. Uh, it seems like to me in the brief conversation that we've had, it's all happened in the last uh, 10 years or so. So let me just sort of uh, begin by, by backtracking and asking... Uh, you, uh, where you're from in Kentucky, um, when you decided to leave that area, what took you to Frankfurt, and then we'll sort of condense all of that down before we launch into your uh, writing and film career. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity. I am from the megalopolis of Longs Creek, Kentucky, and I think probably everybody knows exactly where that is. It's about two miles from Buckhorn. And it is just literally a, a little uh, creek uh, that runs into the Kentucky, middle fork of the Kentucky River. My family's been and still is there. We've been on that little piece of ground since about 1870. My aunt still lives in the house that I grew up in. And uh, I lived there for about seven years, moved to Jackson, moved, which is truly a megalopolis. Big city. Big city. Uh, lived there for... a. Uh, most of my uh, late childhood and, and early adulthood until I left for college at Georgetown, went to Georgetown College, uh, had it in my mind, Bill, that I would definitely, uh, that I would go back to Eastern Kentucky. I, I was fairly certain of that until I graduated from college and actually got a job right out of college in Jackson managing a sporting goods store hmm. with my big political science degree. And I hate to say it, but about a week into it, I realized that that was not for me, that something had changed, that uh, Georgetown College had kind of opened my eyes and my mind to other things. And suddenly, my, uh, just my beloved Breathitt County was uh, a place that I did not think I could stay any longer. Or make a living? Uh, that was probably the biggest thing. I did have a job. Uh, and, you know, I was living at home with my parents, Parents, which was a, you know, you don't do that after you leave college. You just can't come back. You know, the baby bird can't come back to the nest. It just doesn't hardly work Well, you that didn't way. do it at that time. It seems like it's done more often uh, today, but that, it, was, that was some years ago when that happened to you. It, yeah, it was a number of years ago. And I could have. My dad had just built a big new house. We had lived in a small trailer uh, for 13 years. Six of us lived in a, in a mobile home. And then about the time all of us left, my dad gets it in his head that he's going to build a great big house, and we did. And I went home every weekend and every summer for two years, and he built a magnificent house. And then we all left. <laughs> so yeah, And um, then you left. And then I left, and I came to, to Frankfurt and started out with the Legislative Research Commission. Vic Hellard hired me. And uh, that was really the, the big opportunity in my life. Uh, it started me out in a direction that I really had no idea, even though I had a political science degree, that I would end up in. And I enjoyed it. And my writing skills, uh, I still have a paper 
a, a term paper that I wrote my senior year in high school on Lord Byron that has a big red F on it. Mm-hmm. And I was not a writer. And uh, yet, it, really, at Georgetown College, I learned the craft. It started to enjoy it. And by the time I got to LRC, I was actually drafting bills and writing speeches and uh, research reports. And so writing really did become an important uh, and interesting part of my life at that point. And then what? Well, I stayed there for about seven years, and I didn't really want to be in that position. I felt like I was more... Felt like my communication skills were a little beyond just sitting behind a desk and and uh, writing everybody else's speech. I wanted to give the speeches, so uh, luckily I found an opportunity to become a lobbyist. And I know that's a dirty word and a lot of legislative uh, legislative legislative liaison <laughs> liaison. So uh, I became uh, and it is a lobbyist, but all the cities in the state, which I really enjoyed. Never came across a single issue that philosophically I could not take. And that would probably have been, I'd say the, the League of Cities and Cities were the, about the only organization where that could have happened for me. So that just, you know, was a brilliant mm-hmm. stroke of luck. Did that for the rest of my career, actually. And enjoy, I enjoyed it. It was tough. It's I would have to say lobbying is the closest thing to a contact sport that you can uh, get into these days and it was rough and uh, contentious at a lot of times but it it afforded me a good living and I got to meet people all across the state and again really broadened who I was and kind of helped me become who I, who I would be at that time were you doing any writing or filmmaking no uh I would occasionally, I'll run across little things, and I keep every little shred of paper, every note anybody's ever given me. I'll run across, like a woman fell in the parking lot one morning, and she laid there for 20 minutes in about 10-degree weather, and we were all shivering, trying to keep her warm, and and we thought she was just destroyed there at the annex, and uh, turned out that she had sprained her ankle, but she worked for the Department of Workers' Comp, so she knew exactly what to do. <laughs> yeah. So I went in that afternoon, and I wrote this silly story about terror in parking lot V, which is just goofy. I can't <laughs> believe I'm saying that. But it was just a little attempt at some creative writing. And so occasionally I'll still run across a little piece of my creative writing, and it was silly stuff. I would try comedy. And uh, so that was really the only opportunity, and just when I would dream something silly mm-hmm. up. So you left uh, uh, your job with the League of Cities and thought maybe there was something else uh, in life for you. How, how, did, you, how did you move from, uh, because you were retired, you, you, you used the R word, you were in retirement, and then you, did you just think one day, I'm going to try this writing thing again? Well, I didn't really know. Uh, That was one of the few times, Bill, that I didn't have a plan in my life. I didn't know exactly what. I knew I'd do something. It always happens for me. But I retired. I went home. And I really didn't have much to do. So I started volunteering in my wife's kindergarten class. And at the end of the day, they would want to hear stories. And so being a mountain person... We love ghost stories, and so it doesn't have to be Halloween. Uh, we just tell ghost stories. So I would tell those kids the big toe or raw head and bloody bones or something. And so 
they got tired of hearing those same ones, and they'd say, "Mr. Deaton, hmm. tell it, makes just tell us another story." So, uh, I, one day I was sitting there, and I thought, "Well, I looked at this old scratched-up wedding ring, and I thought, well, you know, last night hmm. I was on my front porch, and I looked out, and there was this old woman, and she was in the field out in front of us, and she had on a long gray dress." She had her hair up in a bun, and she had those little granny boots on, and she was looking in the grass for something. And I looked at them, and I just had them by the palm of my uh-huh. hand. And I thought, uh-huh. well, you know, I, uh, that was pretty good. Yeah. So I just started making new stories up. And uh, So they weren't true. They, they were all... <laughs> As if a ghost story is true. Well, no. Yeah. But what I would do, Bill, and this is how I write, I pictured my little granny... Uh, and she was about five feet tall, and that was exactly her. And I just pictured her out there looking for something. Mm-hmm. And then I just, you know, as I went, it just sort of all came to me. But you're right. Uh, in my ghost story book, probably 85% of everything in it is something straight out of real life. And then I would make up the mm-hmm. the ghost story. And I guess I'm the only, maybe the only ghost story author who has never seen a ghost. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm open. Uh-huh. I'm open to it, but uh, I've just never seen one. So so how did you find the, the craft of writing and the, the responsibility you felt to, to, to be a good writer? What did you do to, to hone that craft? I went to the Appalachian Writer School at uh, the Hyman Settlement School, their uh, writing class. Mm-hmm. I applied for that. I sent him a little ghost story, and I knew the kids liked it. But I thought, Lord, what will what will grown people think of this mess? And they accepted me, and I went to the to the writer school. And one night, I was sitting there, and there was about eighty people in the audience, and Silas House and Jason and some other people were there. And I thought, Oh, good Lord, I'm going to have to read my stuff. And yeah. so I started reading it, and I was afraid to look up. And finally I did, and I looked up, and, and every one of them were just sitting there with their mouth wide open. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, they liked it. And I went home that day at the end of that week, and I thought, I am going to – and I learned stuff. I found my voice, which mm-hmm. was – I knew how – I had writing skills, and I knew how I wanted to write, but I had not found my voice yet, which is an odd thing to say. But, but writers uh, talk like writers that. talk like that, and I figured out at the Hyman Settlement Schools Appalachian Writers uh, program what my voice was. I became very comfortable with that, and I just sat down and I wrote fifteen more stories, all taken straight out of Breathitt County and straight out of my life, and I made it. I, I, a year later, I applied, and I literally picked my books up from the printer on the way to Heinemann. Mm-hmm. So I made it, I got a, I beat my deadline yeah. and made it. And so that was my first opportunity yeah. what really made, got me serious about it. How often did you go to the writer's conference? I went twice and that was plenty. Um, it was such a fun event and I got, I loved the people there, but I realized, you know, if I go now, I'm just going to be hanging out because I didn't feel like I wanted to change that much my changed my writing that mm-hmm. much, so mm-hmm. I didn't go back anymore. And, um, and I, how long ago was that? Oh gosh, that was in 2009, probably not really that long ago. No, nine years ago. And then, uh, after that, did um, did Kentucky Boy 
was that something? Well, you that was my on? first attempt. Uh-huh. Actually, I've been writing down stories because I wanted my daughters to know what it was like to grow up in Breathitt County and in the mountains. And so I would write down little stories and I had five or six of them already made up. And one day my wife and I were driving around in Eastern Kentucky somewhere in Breathitt County, I'm sure. And she said out of the blue, she said uh, that she was actually envious of me from being from the mountains. And I thought, what? Where, where was she from? She's from Louisville. Uh-huh. And she said, she said, you have a uh, feeling of place and belonging that I don't have. And I thought, well, you know, you're absolutely right. And I, I was stunned because I've really never, nobody's ever been jealous of me for being from Eastern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been made fun of and mm-hmm. kidded. Uh, fellow at LRC, when I just first started working there, called me up one day and he said, Jerry, he said, can you come down to the rotunda real quick? He said, we've got a tour group from Harlan and we need an interpreter. <laughs> so he was, <laughs> you know, I've, that's funny. the kind of thing I've had yeah. thrown at me, but right. never has anybody said they were jealous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write this down. And so I decided that not having had a tragic mm-hmm. or a magnificent, extraordinary life, I would just take 20 words that I thought summed up growing up in Eastern Kentucky and write 20 short stories. Mm-hmm. And so I took football, I took Christmas, I took uh, church, uh, mule. I actually, I'm probably the only lobbyist that's ever plowed a mule mm-hmm. that's still around. Mm-hmm. And so I took those and, and wrote uh, just what I thought would be stories mm-hmm. that would not, and I didn't want to shame Eastern Kentucky and I didn't want to try to glorify it either, but I wanted to give you a pretty accurate look mm-hmm. into what my life was like mm-hmm. growing up in a trailer. That mm-hmm. was one of my stories uh, in Eastern Kentucky in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. Because it's a, it is a very different world. It's a world that uh, it seems like the people who know the most about it have been there the least. And so I wanted people to see what it was actually like to have a. I had a good childhood. We didn't have a lot. But I had a very good childhood that I would not trade for anything. I'm uh, speaking with Jerry Deaton, who is a member of our Speakers Bureau, and uh, he uh, represents Kentucky Humanities all across the state of Kentucky. And all of those uh, members of our Speakers Bureau and the way uh, that you can book a speaker uh, or a Chautauqua actor uh, is right there on our website, kyhumanities.org. And you can scroll down and, and look at the... Uh, the variety of, uh, of speakers that we now have in our in our bureau, uh, really a, an amazing array of wonderful folks that uh, kind of cover the, the gamut of um, history and, and philosophy and social media. And today I'm talking with Jerry Deaton. And um, at some point um, you uh, thought maybe you'd uh, like to do a film or two. Tell, tell me about how that... Uh, you morphed from from writing into into being a, a filmmaker and documentary producer. Well, I don't. I honestly can't even imagine how that happened myself. When I think back about it, because I've got zero training in that field. Uh, I guess what happens with me, Bill, is that I, if I decide something needs to be done and that nobody else is going to do it, then by God, I'll take it on. Mm-hmm. And there was this little story about Breathitt County where I had we had a log cabin in our backyard my whole life, and I was always told that a man was killed on the front porch of that cabin. And uh, 
found out that he was. His picture was hanging in there. And a man named Captain Bill Strong killed him from ambush from up in the hills there. And I got to looking and thinking more about that. And then I was reading a book one day very early on in my career at LRC. I went to the law library, found a book on Bloody Breathed. And in that book, I found my great-great-grandfather Bob Deaton's name. And Bob had killed somebody. And I went home that night, and I asked Dad, I said, Dad, did Grandpa Bob kill somebody? And he goes, well, yeah, we always heard he did. And so, you know, nobody had ever said that to me. And Grandpa Bob was a minister. So I became intrigued with the feuds of Breathitt County. I, you know, all my life when I would travel across the state and I'd say, people would say, where are you from? They'd recognize that deep name and they'd say Breathitt County. And I'd, they'd go, bloody Breathitt. Mm-hmm. And so that is where I'm from, bloody Breathitt. And that is the, the namesake comes from the feuds. So... I decided that it was time somebody did that. If we waited much longer, the few people left that had even secondhand knowledge of the feuds were going to be dead. Now, 30 years ago, you couldn't have done it. There would still, it would have been, I probably would have been taking uh, peril of my own life Mm -hmm. if I had decided to do that 30, 35 years Mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. But things have settled down, and and, uh, I think it was time and it worked out real well. I've, I've still, I found people who had, who were descendants of feudists. And uh, uh, luckily my brother-in-law and sister had a film, little film company, Pinnacle Production here in Lexington. And uh, we decided to make a film on it. And it, I, I think it's turned out real well, real well. KET shows it, I hear once a week, mm-hmm. five years into it, that somebody saw me on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work. Didn't know if I could do it. Um, you know, writing the script, making sure it flows, making sure it has some art art to it. There is just a tremendous amount that goes into filmmaking. And literally, I just decided if I liked it and it flowed well and it was, it was correct, that was what I was going to go with. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of took those... Uh, strengths that I had that I had used throughout the rest of my life and I just applied it to making a film. And did that lead you to the same um, uh, anxiousness, uh, the the same desire to to make the Harry Cottle film? Well, when I finished the Breath of County film, I thought, I'm I'm finished. I don't have any other ideas. That was really hard. Uh, you know, I did it. I, I, maybe I did it, Bill, just to see if I could do it. I don't know. But uh, I had no plan to make another film until I met Miss Ann Cottle one night at a writer's group in Louisville, Kentucky, the Cherokee Roundtable. And she was just a fascinating character. Uh, got to know her really well. And it just started creeping in on me again. I thought, okay, here I go. I'm getting myself into something else. And one day, just out of the blue, I just threw it at her. I said, Ann, I said, we need to make a film about Harry Cottle. And she looked straight at me and said, nope. She said, it's just be too hard. Uh, it's too painful. And I just left it there. Then saw her again about a month later, and, and we chatted and, and sort of hung out together at the meeting. Saw her again about two months later, and uh, it had stuck in my mind. And I just threw it on her again. I said, Ann, we need to do a film about Harry. And she looked straight at me and said, okay. 
Mm. And I thought, oh, Lord, what have I done? You know, the, the feud film was, it was a, and I, I, I describe it only as a sweet film about mass murder, if you can actually <laughs> come up with something about that. And it was something that you could do without a lot of seriousness. But this mm-hmm. one was going to require a lot of seriousness because mm-hmm. this is one of Kentucky's greatest, possibly the one of the greatest people of the 20th century. And I realized it had to be done in a very professional manner. It had to be done, uh, in my opinion, 100% correct. Uh, you know, there, there was no room for any, any uh, factual errors. And so I, it, it, as soon as she said yes, I kind of thought, oh, God, mm. you know, you've yeah. really, you've jumped on a high horse now. If you run into somebody, even a Kentuckian, who doesn't know Harry Cottle or doesn't know his work or doesn't know Night Comes to the Cumberlands, how do you describe? Uh, you you also do uh, work with uh, Rhodes Scholars, uh, Jerry. Uh, Rhodes Scholars is a uh, how would you describe a uh, a scholastic travel uh, a company that's worldwide. They they take groups of people uh, all over the world, and mm-hmm. and one of those Rhodes Scholars uh, trips is to uh, is to Appalachia. Uh, I, I think there are more in Kentucky. There, there might are. be one on the Bourbon Trail, that sort of thing. I, I'm not exactly sure of all of them. But uh, if somebody in the, uh, and I'm sure you speak about Harry Cottle in your, mm-hmm. in your talks to the Rhodes Scholars down at Cumberland Falls, how, how do you explain to somebody his significance and greatness in Kentucky? At this, usually when I have gotten to, the, to them at that point in their week, they have been to strip mines. They have seen the effects of it. They have seen some of the poverty. And so I just basically, and a lot of them have heard of him. Probably, I would say, at least 25% of, of the 50 people in the room uh, will have heard of him. Mm-hmm. There will be 15 or so that will know Harry Cottle, and definitely no night comes to the Cumberlands. But I will just start out by saying that this was a man I admired who I felt as if I connected to him uh, in many ways because I had some of the same activist feelings. So certainly not, I don't have his courage or his strength or his intellect by any stretch and few people do. But uh, I just describe him as a, an author and activist uh, in Eastern Kentucky who just felt so compelled to say something about the inequities that were going on around him at the time. And he did it so eloquently through, uh, through his books and his writings and his speeches. And he kicked off a movement, really, the, the uh, uh, Johnson's uh, uh, War on Poverty mm-hmm. was largely started. They all, Kennedy's and Johnson, they all read Night Comes to the Cumberlands. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I show them the film and get started on it, uh, I only show them about a 10-minute clip, and they're always disappointed. They want to see the rest of it, mm-hmm. but we don't have time. Mm-hmm. But then we kind of go on at that point, and I, I talk about the things that Harry— wh- what I wanted to do with this, Bill, was not just relive Harry's life, but I wanted his message, which if you read Night Comes to the Cumberlands now, it is as uh, relative— today as it was 52 years ago uh, when he wrote it Mm -hmm. 1960 it's probably Mm -hmm. 53 years ago Mm -hmm. and it's amazing just how 
the man saw Eastern Kentucky. He he recognized what the problems are. And if you look back, if you look at it now, if you go back in there today, that's largely what is still going on. Mm-hmm. You know, the same types of issues mm-hmm. with uh, undereducated population. Uh, you know, the county government, the, the the governments are still very open to corruption. We still see a lot of that in the newspapers these days. You know, it's been a while. It's been quite a long time since I've read it. And you're, um, you're talking about it now makes me want to go back and, and, and reread it. I'm, I'm going to make a, a, it's a tough read. effort to go back that. Yeah, but, but I'm also thinking, I don't remember, I remember everything uh, that you've spoken about. I I don't think he addressed and uh, the drug difficulty then. It was different because it was different, uh, wasn't it? You and know, people smoked a little pot, yeah, but and drank, uh, but you know, it, and maybe it is, to excess, but not to the point no, of the opioid uh, heroin or the pills, right? That right, is yeah. back there now, okay. and it is it is a severe problem, yeah, yeah. which needs it has to be addressed. Yeah. That's that's another one of the major issues. Uh, a large employer is not going to go back there when you yeah. just can't find people who are, are able and willing to work. Well, let me, uh, I, I want to come back to that in a moment, but I want to sort of finish you and, and bring everyone up to date on where you are now because you, you've, uh, uh, you're a writer, a filmmaker, and I mentioned in our introduction about your, your playwriting uh, mm-hmm. and how, just give us a brief synopsis of that and, and how much fun you're having doing that, how much work it is for you, too. Well, I will have to say, Bill, that playwriting is my favorite mm. form of writing and my favorite thing to do. I love theater. My daughter, Emmy, got involved in it and is just a phenomenal actress and singer. So I was around it a lot. Got involved, acted a couple times, and I cannot act. There, people would look at me and say, "Sometimes somebody will go, is there anything you can't do?" And I'll go, "Yeah, I cannot act. Yeah. I can't remember the lines. I just cannot. It's not the way my my brain works." But I love uh, directing. I'm getting my first opportunity to direct. I've written four new plays, four one act plays for Shelby County Community Theater. Uh, back in 16, I wrote my first four one-act plays, uh, taking my, some of my ghost stories and uh, adapting them to stage. Worked out really well. We sold out five nights, and uh, people seemed to really enjoy it. I enjoyed it. And uh, it didn't come to me right off the bat, but uh, last fall I was riding my bicycle, and just all of a sudden three ideas for three plays just swooped in on me. And so I literally turned around went home and started writing them down. And I just, I love seeing, uh, you know, it's one thing to see your work come to life on a screen, but somehow seeing it come to, to work to life on a stage is just a completely different and, and satisfying matter. Hmm. And these plays are going to be presented uh, at the Shelby County Theater uh, in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- tell us, just give us a little uh, promo about that. Well, it'll be, it'll be November 8, 9, 10, and 11. At Shelby County Community Theater, I think 7.30 uh, the weeknights and then 2.30 on Sunday. Then we are actually going to have a showing at the Grand Theater in Frankfurt. going to be one of, maybe the first time a production has moved out of Shelby Community Theater and into another city. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a production on November 16, Friday, November 16, at 7.30 at the Grand Theater as well. Well, good luck with that. I know that's uh, fascinating, and you... You do seem to 
to brighten up a little <laughs> bit when you're talking about your playwriting. It, it's fun. It is just a joy to me. But I want to go back to um, current day uh, Appalachia, some uh, pieces that uh, have been written uh, just in the last uh, few years. Uh, we we talked uh, off microphone a bit about uh, J.D. Vance's uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, not that he all of a sudden uh, introduced Appalachia to the rest of the world. It's always been there. You mentioned Lyndon Johnson and, and uh, Robert Kennedy visiting Eastern Kentucky uh, back in the 60s. Uh, we both had a little Frankfurt experience where uh, I have to tell you, I was first introduced to uh, to Eastern Kentucky through uh, Kentucky Educational Television. And and the phenomenon that, that I be, began to realize uh, is Appalachia and what it means to people there. And But you've got some really deep-rooted feelings and thoughts about uh, where we are today with, with Appalachia. And you just referenced it when you said that you could go back and read Night Comes to the Cumberlands uh, by Harry Caudill, and it's pretty much uh, the way you find it today. It is, and I hate to say that, but uh, it actually is. And there are so many things, there are so many core, tough problems that just people, it's almost like it's the elephant in the room and nobody will say anything about it. And uh, you know, we had, um, uh, what was the, what's the recent effort in Pikeville? Uh, soar. Soar. Save our S- Appalachian region. Yes. Uh, you know, I went to several of their meetings and they, to, to me, they weren't, I appreciate what they were trying to do and, and it was a nice effort, but nobody was talking about the fact that we have too many county, gov- we have too many counties that lends itself to to uh, little pockets, little kingdoms that that don't need to be there. We need to we need to heavily think about that. Nobody's talking about the the land that is lying idle, that is owned by out-of-state land companies or huge coal companies. That's that's probably very little taxes being paid on, and nobody wants to develop around it because they're afraid to. They don't know if it's going to be strip mined. So uh, that's a huge part, a huge portion of land in eastern Kentucky is in that situation. They did a study on it in the Kentucky River Area Development District in the 70s. Even then we knew that was a huge issue. Drugs absolutely have to be addressed back there. It's tough in Frankfurt. I know heroin's a big issue up here, but it is an even larger issue in eastern Kentucky with the pills and the meth, and there are just so... Uh, so many people that are afflicted by drugs and alcohol, that has to be addressed. Um, workforce, uh, yeah, with a with, with an a, educated, trained workforce. We have to we have to continue to educate ourselves. Which, unfortunately, a lot of people in the mountains don't choose to go on to college. That's uh, that's an issue that has to be addressed, and that only the people in the mountains can can address. You can't force people. Uh, to, to do the right thing. You can't uh, just keep dumping the money truck out back there either. You know, things are better in a lot of ways. We have better roads and we have bricks and mortar projects, but we are still, according to a 2015 government report, uh, we are still the most um, 
impoverished region in the United States that used to be that is considered Appalachia. Uh, Eastern Kentucky still uh, it has risen some, but we are still lagging uh, really far behind uh, when it comes to uh, just our general well-being and our health and our ability to make a living and all of that. Are there bright spots? Oh my goodness, Bill! I, I I take tour. I give people tours of Eastern Kentucky. I'll take my friends back there. I'll take them to restaurants. I take them to little churches. I take them to these little stores. It is the most beautiful spot in the state, and the people back there are just you know we we get a bad rap. People think we're all that we're mean or dangerous. If if you break if your car breaks down in Frankfurt, you're literally going to get run over before <laughs> anybody will stop. Yeah. If you break down on on Highway 315 in Breathitt County, I just about guarantee you the first person that comes along will not only stop, but will pick you up, take you wherever you mm-hmm. need to go. And so it is it is wonderful generous people. Uh, there is so much back there. I, it's it, to me, it is the crown jewel of the state of Kentucky, and we've got a lot. Well, there uh, are, are a lot of uh, great stories coming out of there. Yes, there are, there are many, many problems, and that's the dichotomy. That's the mm-hmm. that's the perplexing equation that people still begin to wrestle with. I just heard uh, Governor Patton say, Governor Paul Patton, native of uh, Pikeville. Uh, and now at uh, the University of Pikeville, uh, helping them, uh, served as, as president, interim president for a while. But I just heard him say the other day, which was pretty phenomenal. We all know that uh, the University of Pikeville now has a uh, optometry school. And he went through a, uh, a list of the states that surround Appalachia, that surround Pikeville, that the states, the state universities don't have an optometry school. There are about seven or eight states surrounding Kentucky, surrounding Pikeville, and all those kids are now filtering into the University of Pikeville to this optometry school. That in itself has helped Pikeville, the city, uh, and the county grow a lot. We know that uh, Alltech and uh, their work there uh, with the distillery and the um, I heard the other day that uh, a story about them that uh, their gift shop uh, had the biggest one day or one week sale of items in their gift shop uh, that than all of the other places that that Alltech has a a, a gift uh, operation. Uh, so there are some positive coding going on, uh, hopefully to some of those uh, young mountain kids who who think they can they can continue to work. Uh, and it's not glossing over the, 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 the problems, but it's not all negative and bad, is it? No, and uh, what Governor Patton is doing is what should have been done. Eastern Kentucky University should have been put in Hazard, Kentucky. There is no doubt in my mind. Uh, that would have created, uh, it would have probably grown into the same type of big, large university. It would have educated uh, the kids that really did not want to leave and even go to Richmond, but it should have been plopped smack dab in the middle of Hazard. I, I've never thought of that before. Have you ever looked into the history of? Well, I'm sure it was political. There were political yeah, reasons yeah. as to why. Sure, but it is not in Eastern Kentucky. It, yeah, it, you know, it's a, and it's a wonderful <laughs> school. Don't yeah. get me wrong. And, yeah, but it 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 needed to be in a different location. And what Governor Patton's doing with Pikeville College is what should have been done there. And and it's going to bloom. Pikeville is growing. 
it's it's what needs mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. And so we need that again somewhere else in the middle of Appalachia. We don't have anything like that. To, to We don't have an anchor in Eastern Kentucky. And Eastern Kentucky University in Hazard would have been our anchor. Mm, interesting. I, I'd never thought of it that way. Well, Jerry Deaton, uh, writer and filmmaker and, and uh, uh, a person of the theater now, <laughs> uh, but also very passionate about... Uh, uh, place and your home uh, county and where you grew up. Um, what do you want to do with all this? You 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 uh, have so much that you, uh, you're sort of spread yourself in a way that uh, you you love now writing for the theater. But I also see in you this uh, this uh, this burning uh, passion for Appalachia, telling that story, but 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 trying to turn it around and, and, and do some good at, at the same time, not just telling the story, but, but having a positive impact. Well, I think that sums it up perfectly, Bill. Uh, I love the mountains. I love going back there. Uh, everything, as we spoke earlier, everything that seems to motivate me comes from the 20 years that I spent in Breath of County. And I want people to know through my work, that it is a good place, that it's a fantastic place, as a matter of fact. But I also want, you know, I don't try to gloss over the, the rough edges, uh, and I don't try to make it all rough edges, but I, you know, I, I'm hoping that the people in Eastern Kentucky uh, will eventually want better for themselves. Mm-hmm. I ha- that is about the only way I can put it. I think you have to just plain old want better for yourself and your children. Uh, and that's what it's going to take. It, it's all the money in the world can't be sent back there and cure it. But uh, eventually we just have to do better ourselves. Well, Jerry Deaton, it's uh, been a pleasure to meet you and uh, talk with you. And uh, thank you for being a guest on Think Humanities. Thank you, Bill. And thank the Humanities Council. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.